service, but um, several years after I had uh, gone and, and I was pastoring a church, I went to visit my old church where I grew up, and uh, the gentleman who was my training union teacher came up to me, and he said, the one thing I remember about you, and I was waiting for this, he said, every time we looked at the book Job, you called it Job. And I thought, that's just what I want to be remembered for right there. That's exactly what I want to be remembered for. But we are looking in Job and not Job um, this morning. You know, the Bible informs us that we as believers have enemies. And we have the enemy of death. Uh, We have the enemy of the world. And we have the enemy that is Satan or the devil. And it's interesting when we think about Satan, it's, it's something that has shocked me, but recently there have been studies done, polls taken with believers, or at least people who say that they're believers, and asked the question, do you believe that there is really Satan or the devil? And it was amazing to me to see that about 50% of people who claim to be believers do not believe that there is a real devil or that Satan is real. And it's, it's something that is a problem when we look at the scriptures because the scripture makes it very clear that Satan is our enemy and that we need to be aware of what he is about. Now, Christians do have some odd responses to the idea of the devil or Satan. I remember again when I was a kid hearing a preacher talk about his uh, believing that the devil was in everything that went wrong in his life. And he actually told the story about his car having some engine troubles, and he opened up the hood of his car, and he prayed that God would remove that demon out of his engine and his car. When all along, even as a kid, I thought, maybe you need a new car. Maybe that's, that's the issue, and maybe it's not Satan at all. On the other hand, while there are some that act like the devil's in everything, and, and is the cause of everything, there are those of us, as I said, that don't even believe he exists and just think of it as just an idea, that Satan is just an idea rather than an actual entity, an enemy that we have. I know this. If we look at an enemy, and if I were the enemy of someone, I would really like it that they didn't believe I was their enemy because that would make things a whole lot easier for me to work and do the things that I would want to do. Now, I hate to be the devil's advocate, and I'm not, so I want to make that clear, okay? But I'm just thinking those ways that that's, that, that would be my thinking. But the Bible teaches that Satan is real, and there, there is a very real spiritual war going on. And the book of Job sheds a great deal of light on the spiritual war that is being waged. And so with this in mind, I would like us to look at the first part of Job, chapter 1 and 
part of chapter 2 this morning, and I'd just like to make some observations. First of all, some observations about Job. Secondly, some observations about Satan. Third, some observations about God. And then fourthly, some observations about spiritual warfare in light of these other observations. So if you will, please, let's read beginning with chapter 1 and verse 1 in Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Well, let me make some observations about Job as we begin. First of all, Job was a real person as well. I talk about Satan being real. Job was real. And he lived in a land called Uz, probably located in the south of Israel in what would be today the northernmost part of Saudi Arabia. Notice the description of Job here in verse 1. Job was, and this is my second observation, he was a man of complete integrity. Everything about Job was sincere as he sought to live for God. And we see this by God's word himself. Look down, if you will, at verse 8 says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So what we see here is that Job was a godly man. And this is important to the whole story, the whole book of Job, because his friends will come along and say that the reason these terrible things happen to Job are because uh, Job is a sinner in some way. He has done something to cause these things. But notice all of the words here used in verse 1. It says, first of all, he was blameless. This means he was a man of integrity. What this means is that when people looked at Job, they saw a man that they said, this is a godly man. It's not saying that he was perfect doesn't say that he was completely without sin, but what it does say is that this is a man who is devoted to God, and this is a man who lives a life before us that would be good to emulate, that would be good to follow, because he is a great example of what it means to be a man of God. And so this is who he was. And then it goes on to say that he was upright, Upright means Job lived according to God's statutes. He walked according to God's commands, what he knew God wanted in his life. He was very serious 
about living a life in tune with God's way and God's commands. And he took these very seriously in how he lived day to day. And then it says that he was a man who feared God, fearing God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's interesting in the Old Testament, this is a phrase that's often used, but let me tell you, it's also a phrase used in the New Testament. And what's odd to me, I'm, I guess, nostalgic this morning, remembering when I was a kid, but when I was a kid, it was not unusual to hear people in the church talk about a person being a God-fearing person, that that person is a God-fearing man, that is a God-fearing woman. I don't know what language you use in this church, but I will tell you in the circles I've been in for many, many years now, I rarely, if ever, hear that phrase anymore. And we, it's not that we have to, but I find it odd that we don't, given that God is one to be feared. But that raises the question, what does it mean to fear God? When I was in Sunday school, kids are pretty sharp. Um, in fact, uh, sometimes I'm worried that I was sharper more when I was a kid than I am now. I'm not sure about that, but sometimes seem, things seem to be digressing instead of going the way I would want. But kids can notice with parents and, and Sunday school teachers or training union teachers as well that when they read something in the Bible that they're concerned about um, making sure that you understand it or don't misunderstand it, you can tell this. For instance, I remember when I was a kid, whenever they read or spoke of the Song of Songs, they were always very uncomfortable with that. And I could say, something's up with that book. I don't know what it is, but there's something up with that book. And I remember I was about 10 years old. After a training union and after service that Sunday night, I went to my room, took my Bible, and I read through a short book, read through the Song of Songs, and I got done, and I'm like, what's all the hoopla about? I don't get this at all. I don't see what the issue is. Well, I figured it out later. Um, but uh, So I knew there was something up. There was something else up with fearing God. Because every time my teachers would read a pas- passage deal- dealing with the fear of the Lord, they would stop right away, and they would look at us, And they would say, this does not mean that you should be afraid of God. What this means is that you need to respect him. Now, as a kid, and I still, I never got past this. I had some questions about that that kind of understanding. Here's the reason why. I grew up in the north. Um, You may hear that I don't have a, a southern accent. I grew up, though. I, it's not an Alabama accent like Brian. In fact, I would tell him that I was his only Yankee friend, and he would tell me, and that's questionable. And so uh, I understand that. I'm a big Ohio State fan. And when we did beat Alabama in 2014 for the national championship, and many of you know he played football for the University of Alabama, um, I saw him across the parking lot at school one day, and I started humming really loudly so he could hear the fight song, song for Ohio State. 
And he said, you Ohio State's winning the national championship is like white trash winning the lottery. So there you go. And that was music to my ears um, to hear that. But I did grow up in Cleveland, Ohio, in a southern home, though. So I'm all mixed up because my dad was from Arkansas, north central Arkansas, and my mom from the Boot Hill, Missouri. They both grew up in cotton fields. And so I grew up on southern cooking in Cleveland, Ohio. And so I don't talk like my family, um, but I enjoy the food of my family a great deal. And so, and a lot of other things as well. And so I, I kind of have a mixed up, as my sister-in-law from Cleveland would say, I'm, I'm kind of mixed up because I have just a little bit of all of it in me. But when we think about fearing the Lord and understanding this, being afraid, they would always say to me, you don't need to be afraid. But my parents, being good southern, um, southern boy, southern girl, that raising kids with a southern understanding of things, always said, you say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and you respect your elders. Okay, I got it. Understood that. The only thing is, as I got older, I realized some of my elders didn't act very respectable. And that was a dilemma for me because I began to realize that just because they're older than me, sometimes even older than my parents, I see people not acting very godly at times. And so it's very difficult for me to understand that I need to respect them when they're not acting respectable. And then you tell me that fearing the Lord means respecting him. And I'm saying, well, you told me to respect my elders. They act that way. Now you're telling me to respect God. No, they're not the same. God deserves more than that. And so the fear of the Lord is much more than an idea of just showing respect. And as we look at the scriptures, I would like to, I'll give you a definition of what I believe the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is a deep-seated reverence and awe for God that causes humans to want to honor him at all costs and avoid his loving discipline. Oh, yes, there is an element of some fear in fearing the Lord. And if you don't get that, I'll go to the New Testament. Work out your salvation in what? Help me. Fear and tr Thank you. I always need help with the New Testament there. Maybe you say, well, you need help with the old too. I do. That's right. No doubt about it. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then Peter warns people, the church, that they need to be care careful because of the Lord's discipline and to live in fear, in a healthy fear, but fear nonetheless as they live for Christ. So there is an element of it. There is a desire to honor God, and it, a part of that is to do so because we love him, but it's also because we don't want to experience his discipline, even as loving as his discipline is. It involves attentiveness, wonder, submission, obedience, consideration, admiration, worship, and love inspired by God's eternal attributes and authority. Oh, it involves respect, 
But that just barely scratches the surface of what it really means to fear the Lord as we look at this idea biblically. And this is who Job was. He was a man who was blameless. He was a man who was upright. He was a man who feared God. So it's no surprise to us. We see here it says in verse 1 that he turned away from evil or the idea is he shunned evil. He shunned the things that were anti-God, anti-God's word. He wanted nothing to do with those kinds of things. This is who Job was. So right away, the story sets it up and establishes that none of the tragedies that are about to happen to Job happened as God's punishment or discipline for some particular sin that Job committed. And this is difficult. It's difficult for Job's friends. When you look at this book, it is difficult for us today because we have this idea that Job's friends had that everything that happens, if good happens, then it must be because we've been good, that God blesses us with good things because we've been doing the right things. Or if something bad happens to us, then we must have done something wrong. As a good friend of mine says, he believes that all of us who are believers have just a little bit of health, wealth, gospel in us, whether we like to admit it or not. Because we like to think that if we do the right things, then we're going to get the right results. And if we do something wrong, then bad things will happen. Well, the Bible makes it very clear that that's not the case. And I'll give you another example besides Job. We think about this in 2 Kings chapter 14 with King Jeroboam. Jeroboam, it makes it very clear, was a wicked king, and he led the people of God into wickedness. And yet through his prophet Jonah, God told Jeroboam, I'm going to give you victory over your enemies, and I'm going to expand your territories. In other words, great things are going to happen to Jeroboam and Israel, even though it makes it very clear they're wicked. But it gives the reason why God would do this. What was the reason? Because God is a compassionate God who is merciful, who doesn't always punish us when we do wrong, at least not right away. Wouldn't it be terrible if God punished us every time we, had a, we sinned at all? Every time we thought something that we sh shouldn't think, said something that we shouldn't say, wouldn't it be terrible if he just zapped us every time that happened? It'd be awful. It'd be like, uh, I told you I have dogs. This last week, my dog ran through the invisible fence, and that hurt her. Um, I, didn't, I forgot. I was leading her away, and we have a dead space, and then the other, the, from the backyard to the front. So she ran from the back to the side of the house. Well, I led her to the front, and I forgot I had an invisible fence there, too. So I led her right. It was a bad scene. Wouldn't it be bad if we had some kind of collar on us, and the Lord just zapped us every time? We, we messed up. It'd be terrible. No, he is a merciful, compa compassionate God. And it's very difficult for us to understand that. And we ask the question, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? The question really ought to be, why does God allow good things to happen to sinners? Why does God show compassion 
to sinful people, which by the way, last I checked, that's all of us. Why would he do that? That becomes the real question. And so as we look at this, God is doing this not because, uh, or what's happening here, and I'm going to say God is doing this, but all that happens here is not because of any sin on Job's behalf. It's not any kind of punishment on him. And Job's friends basically say, Job, if you had been better, this wouldn't have happened to you. The real truth of the matter is, if Job's friends had been better, it might have happened to them. And it was because of his righteousness that these terrible things happened to Job. Now, I've thought about this for many years. I thought about this. And I thought, okay, if that's true, if, God's, if, if this happens to Job, if, right, if Job's righteousness is right here, and all these terrible things happen because he was a righteous man, I think I would like my righteousness maybe to be kind of right here. I mean, it's pretty close, but I don't want to go through what Job went through or anything like it. And yet, Job went through what he went through because he was a righteous man. And that's something that we need to understand. As we look at this, another observation about Job. Job was an extremely wealthy man. By the standards of wealth in his culture, he was extremely wealthy. He had many children. That was a sign of prosperity. He had many servants, and he had lots of possessions. And all of these were signs of blessing. Also, it appears he had good health because we see that he loses it, but it appears that he had good health before that. So he had everything that even in our culture today, we would say, this is what we want. It's like the, the little saying that we're taught as children, early to bed, early to rise makes a man what? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's what we want. That's who he was. Job was healthy, wealthy, and wise. He had everything that anyone could ever want. But Job also cared about the spiritual condition of his family. We notice here, it says that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in verse 4, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when these days of feasting were completed and that cycle was done, Job would send for them and consecrate them, and he would offer burnt offerings for them. And what he was doing, he was praying, he was interceding on behalf of his children. Let me tell you, you can measure a person's spiritual devotion to God by how much they care about the spiritual condition of their children. And Job's sons and daughters, they enjoyed spending this time together and sharing in meals. And this was a wonderful thing. It's a picture of a wholesome family uh, of doing this. But Job was concerned for his family. And he prayed for them. He interceded for them. He offered these sacrifices as intercession for his children. Job took his role as the spiritual leader in his home very seriously. I wonder this morning, how many of us 
take that role seriously in our homes with your children, with your grandchildren, with your spouse to understand that we need to take this seriously. There are far too many people in the church today that are leaving the spiritual maturity or spiritual growth or teaching of their children to youth pastors and Sunday school teachers when God established that it's mom and dad who are to take responsibility for that. And first and foremost, dads, that's a part of being the head of the household. It's not being some boss pushing people around. It's being man enough to be a godly man before your wife and your children. That is what it means to be the head of a household. It means being a servant to them. It means looking out for them in, in all the things, especially the spiritual things. And it is that kind of thing. It's not sending them to church. It is taking them to church and being there with them. And they're seeing a mom and dad who live out in their home exactly what they say they believe. And so this is the kind of man he was. Job also, the last observation I make about Job is his greatest treasure, his greatest possession was the Lord himself. After all the terrible things happened to him, and we're going to read this, but after all the terrible things that happened to him, at least the first round and then after the second round as well, what does he say in verse 21 of chapter 1? He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, the Lord has given me things. He's taken away these things. But what I have is what is best. It is the Lord. He is the blessing in my life. And he is the one I want to be a blessing to. And so he understood who was the treasure in his life. And it was his Lord God. I wonder this morning... Who's the treasure in your life? Oh, he loved his children, but when his children were gone, he still loved the Lord. He loved his friends, I'm sure, and he loved his wife, but when they, they turned against him and were not much help to him, he had the Lord and he treasured him. And he, the Lord, was his treasure. And it should be that way with us as well. I remember years ago, someone challenged me in a way that I just didn't like to be challenged, to be honest with you. This is what they said to me. Are you willing to pray that God would remove all the securities that you trust in in your life so that your only trust would be in him? I remember when I heard that, I still remember it, and I'm still like, I'd like to, but that's not just so easy, is it? Take away everything. Lord, take away anything that I would use to put in your place, and let me depend and trust on you and you alone and nothing else. Are you willing to pray that? That's where Job was. 
And that's where we need to be. To be the kind of people that says, the Lord is my treasure. And though the Lord is given, and though the Lord, if he chooses to take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He is my God, and I will trust him, I will worship him, and I will love him until the day he takes me home. He is my God. And that's who Job was. Well, let's read some more. Let's, let's read the rest of this, beginning with verse 6 in Job 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger um, came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came, from among, came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Well, what can we observe about Satan? First of all, Satan's real. Satan is real. And it's important for us 
essential for us to recognize that. Another thing is we can learn about Satan. His name means adversary or accuser. And what is he accusing? He is the accuser of the people of God. We see it here. We see it in Zechariah chapter 3. We see it in Revelation. He is the accuser of the people of God. And he speaks to God. And yes, he does. He speaks to the Lord in accusation against the people of God. Another observation is Satan is an enemy of the people of God and seeks to destroy them. Why does he seek to destroy them? I'm sure there are many things we can see from scriptures, but one is sure. He seeks to destroy us because we are God's witnesses in this dark world. And he, would, he wants to eliminate the witness to who God is. And so the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Satan is, is a master liar, master of deceit. Jesus said that himself about Satan. And it's interesting how he cloaks his answer here. In verse 7, he says, from roaming through the earth and walking around on it. Now, was Satan's answer true? Yes, but it was incomplete. It's one of the things I used to tell my sons. They would say, I'd ask them a question, and they would give an answer, and it would be, by the words, it would be true, but in truth, they were trying to deceive. It's kind of like a story I heard about a a uh, sailor and his, or a captain of a ship and his first mate. The first mate couldn't stand the captain. And so every day in his log, he wrote this about the captain. Well, the captain did not come to work drunk today. The truth is his captain never drank. But did he tell the truth? Yes and no. He lied because his purpose was deceit. So just because you say true words... If you use them to deceive, that's lying, you see. And my sons can say, now you're teaching other people what we had to hear all of our years, living with you. But that's exactly right. That is lying. So he tells the truth. Yeah, he is roaming around through the earth and walking around on it. But Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8, he gives us a little bit more information that helps us with this. Because Peter says this. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Yeah, he's roaming around. He's walking around the earth. But what's he doing while he's doing that? He is looking to destroy, to destroy those who are believers. That is what he is about. And Peter knew about this. He experienced this himself very early on. You remember when Jesus spoke to him in Luke 22, verse 31, he said, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, it's a shame that when we look at this, all of our translations in English, it's sift you. We think that it means Peter. But as you know, I'm sure the New Testament was written in Greek, and in its original language, this you is plural. 
And so I told you I'm from Cleveland, grew up there. It would be you guys. Satan is looking for, um, here it is. Uh, yeah, Satan has asked to sift you guys like wheat or south of the Ohio River, y'all. Okay? So he's not just talking to Peter about Peter. He's saying that Satan has asked if he could sift all of you like wheat. So this isn't just about Peter. This is about all those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has asked this permission. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to destroy your family. Satan wants to destroy this church. And we need to be very cognizant of that. Don't let Satan use you in your family to be a destructive force. And don't let Satan use you in the family of God to be a destructive force. And he will do that if he can. It is his way. It is what he wants to do in this church. And do not allow him to do that. You must stand firm. We must stand firm in our families. We must stand firm personally when we are tempted to sin and we think no one else will see. We must stand firm as the people of God in his church and not allow Satan to have his way with us. But he seeks to destroy. Also, Satan is arrogant. He belittles God. And this is really the whole point of this. He raises some questions. He says, don't you understand that Job is following you because you blessed him? Don't you understand, God, that you're not worthy of worship? Not really. You have to pay someone to worship you. And you're paying Job. You're putting this hedge of protection around him, and you're giving him all these things. And sure, he's going to worship you. And the only way you get worship is to pay him. I tell my wife, the reason she got the dogs for me is so that she could get some dumb creature that would love me and, and follow me and do what I want. Yes. Now, I don't really think they're dumb, but you get the point. The deal is... That's kind of how Satan is talking to God. He doesn't care about you. Job doesn't care. It's all about what, it's all about the stuff. Take the stuff away from him and you'll see what he's really made of. And that's the question of the day. The question is, <clears throat> do you love God for who he is or the stuff that he can give you? That's Satan's question before God and what he was saying about Job. And I believe it's probably what he's saying about you and me as well. Is it about the stuff? How many people, when things have not gone the way they thought they should go in their lives, have said, I'm not going to serve this God if he's going to let this happen in my life. 
he's not going to give me the things I want and keep me from the things I don't want. I don't want that God. And what it does is it goes to serve the very argument that Satan made about Job. And I'm sure he makes about us as well. See, God allows Satan to take away Job's material wealth. He allows him to take away his physical health. And he is doing this for a purpose, and I'll get to that in a minute. Another observation about Satan, though. Satan does have great power. Satan has great power. Jesus called Satan the ruler of the world. Paul called Satan the prince and power of the air and the god of this world. And so he does have power. And what is Satan's strategy? Well, what was his strategy with Job? Take away his possessions. Take away his children. Take away his health. Take away the things that matter most to him. And then see what happens with him. See how that comes out. Where is your faith with this? And that becomes the issue. See, Satan knows how to target us. I think I mentioned last week that when I was born, my mom said, this is going to be my baseball player. Well, I was a pitcher. I'll tell you what. I had about three pitches, three or four. And if I was pitching and I had a team that I was throwing like my curveball against, I'll never forget a game. The wind was blowing in toward me. And so when I threw that curve, it went and then just died at the end. They could not hit it to save their lives. It was a wonderful day until they started bunting the ball and we couldn't field it. And then I got pulled from the game. So it wasn't but for, for just a little bit. It was a good thing, though. But why should Satan throw other pitches at us, to use that baseball metaphor, why should he throw other pitches at us when he takes away our stuff, when he hurts our families, and when he takes away our health, when this happens, when he takes these things away from us, that we're ready to capitulate and turn our back on God, why should he go to anything else? And these things turn us inward. You don't believe that? I can be walking in the night and stub my toe on something and think that my wife needs to call 911. I mean, I mean, it's like, oh, this is awful. I'm dying right here. My wife, she's rolling her eyes like, here he goes again. But it's so easy that we turn inward when things don't go the way we want them to go. And it works. And that's why he does it. But it didn't work with Job. It worked with others, but it didn't work with Job. In 2.8, it says he had severe itching. 2.5, he had oozing sores and scabs. In chapter 19, an offensive breath, extreme weight loss. In chapter 30, intestinal discomfort, also blackened, flaky skin. The whole time this book goes from chapter 2 forward, this is what he looked like. This is what he was going through. It was awful for him. And yet, as if that wasn't enough, his friends and his wife, they don't support him. In fact, his friends basically say, your kids had it coming to them. How awful. How terrible. And it's this wrong thinking that they had. By the way, Satan's timing is not random. Notice they got together his children, right? And his children... They would have these feasts, and the way that would work in the ancient Near East is it would be the oldest. You go to the oldest son, and then the next oldest, and so on. And at the end of that, 
what would happen is Job would offer sacrifices for them and commit them to the Lord. It's interesting, when does God take his children out? Just before the oldest, just after the youngest. Just after he would have offered sacrifices and committed his children to the Lord, it's at that point that God took out his children. Can you imagine? God, I've committed my children to you. I've done everything right for, for them, for you, and now this, you take them from me? How does this make sense? Oh, Satan knows how to hit us. He knows exactly what to do. And the question is, is our faith real or is it just talk? Is he our God when he gives and when he takes away? Or is he our God as long as he, he does things the way I think he should be doing them? And this is the issue that Satan was bringing before him. One other observation about Satan. He's under God's authority and he has limits. He's under God's authority. He has to ask permission. Just like with Peter, God, Jesus said, Satan has asked permission. He's asked if he could do this. Here with Job, Satan asked if he could do this. He wanted to do this. And so he's only allowed to do what God would allow him to do. But the question comes, well, why would God allow him to do this? If God allows him and gives him permission to do these things, isn't God just as... Just as uh, um, responsible for these things as Satan is? Let me ask you this question. Do you have freedom of choice to sin? Yes, you don't have to answer that. Yes, you do. And here's the thing. Who gave you that freedom? God did. But is he responsible for you when you sin? Absolutely not. It's amazing. God gives us freedom, and then we shake our fist at him, when we make the wrong decisions with our freedom. And Satan shakes his fist at God because he doesn't like the fact that he has to get permission from God. And yet he does what he does because he is an enemy of the saints. But rest on this. While I can't answer all the reasons why God does everything, I can tell you this for sure without hesitation. God does it for the good of his people and for his glory, and that means sometimes we don't even recognize how it's good for us. In fact, I believe that sometimes that there are things that happen, we will not know the good of it until we see him face to face. But don't doubt in the darkness what God has shown you to be true in the light. And if God is good, and he is good all the time, how many times have you ever come close to a, an accident and you just missed it and you say, oh, God, thank you. You're so good. Let me tell you, if you just slammed in that car or that car slammed in you, God is still good. Whether you think it is a good thing or not, he's still good. And so he hasn't changed. And it is important for us to recognize that. Well, let me move on. Observations about God. God is in full, full control of the spiritual warfare and what happens. And yes, 
God will use difficulties. He will use Satan even as his pawn to do what he wills for our good and God's glory. And that's something we need to hold on to. What is the heart of Job? By the way, Lord willing, I'm going to be gone a, a couple weeks. I had a, another uh, responsibility at another church. When I get back, we're going to go through a study in the book of Nehemiah. And so we'll just start with that. But if we were going through Job, I'd plant at Job 28. Because that is the heart of the message. It's about wisdom. And the point is, you and I, we don't have the wisdom. You know who has the wisdom? God alone has the wisdom. And if we want wisdom, it only comes from God. And so it is trusting in his wisdom. And God knew Satan wanted to attack Job. Notice this. Who brings up Job in this conversation? Was it Satan that brought up Job? No. It was God that brought up Job. I've often thought about this. I don't want God necessarily bragging on me to anybody. I mean, if this is what he's going to do, I just that's okay. i just be over here. You can talk about Job all you want to. But he's the one that brings up Job to Satan. And he says, have you noticed my servant Job? God is the one that's directing this. Why? To bring glory to himself and silence Satan. After chapter 2, when Job says, I am trusting my God no matter what. You know what we hear from Satan after that? Nothing. Nothing at all. And because of Job's faith and because of his devotion and his trust in God in the middle of all these terrible things that happened to him, Satan is silenced. I want to ask you this morning, do you really want to glorify God? You think about your answer to that. Oh yeah, we, we sing these songs. I want to give you glory. I want to, I want to live for you. I surrender all. Let's just get down to it. Do you really? Do you really want to glorify him? Because if so, how far are you willing to go with that? It's not a negotiation. Either the Lord is the Lord of your life and you live for him and die for him or you don't. And what we see here is God is orchestrating this for Job's good. And by the way, it is for Job's good. Job is said to be this righteous man of integrity, fearing the Lord. And yet you get to the end of the book. And what does he say? He says, I had heard of you, but now I've seen you. How many times do we say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to see you. Sometimes he uses the most difficult, challenging, horrific things in our lives to make himself known to us. And you know what? As bad as it can be, and it can be terrible, like he lost seven sons and daughters as well, three daughters. Knowing God is that what's first in your life. And trusting God's wisdom 
and how he goes about that. Whoever said the Christian life's an easy life? You think we're a bunch of wimps. Tell you what, trusting in God is all in. Being a man or woman of God, it's all in. And that means everything. That means my children. It means my my possessions. It means my marriage. It means my job. It means my health. It means all of who I am. That's what he has called us to. And this is how he glorifies himself in this. Well, God is omnipotent. God is wise. God is just. He always does the right thing. He's good and compassionate. And God will listen to us when we pray to him. Just as he listened to Job. Did he give Job answers? No, he didn't give him explanations. How many of you ever think you need God to give you an explanation? Because God has given us some explanations in his word, we think he, he needs to give us an explanation on everything. And sometimes we forget, we serve him, he doesn't serve us. We think it's the other way around. But no, no, we serve him. He doesn't answer to T.J. Betts. T.J. Betts answers to him. And he will listen to us, though. And he is compassionate in his hearing of us. And he is near to us. Quickly, observations about spiritual warfare God does not inoculate us from spiritual warfare or suffering in this world. He does not. In fact, he will use it for his purposes. And often, spiritual warfare strikes unexpectedly and shockingly. Just going one direction and then side, just hit in the side, never seeing it coming. To suggest that all suffering is a direct consequence of a particular sin is unwise, unhelpful, incorrect. And this is what I wrote in my notes. I'm just going to say it's stupid. Okay? That's what it is. And the reason, again, my wife's not here, and that's the S word in our home. So I'm the one that uses the S word, stupid, because um, we weren't allowed to say that. But see, she's not here, so I'll use the, the S word, stupid. But it's stupid for you to think that just because something terrible has happened in your life or in some other's life, that it is God's punishment on them. It may be, but it may be just because they're righteous and God is doing something in their life that was unforeseen through that, just like he did with Job. When you experience spiritual warfare, it's an opportunity to witness to the glory of God. It's an opportunity to lead others to Christ. Why are we talking about Job? Why is he even mentioned here in this book in the Bible? It is because of the testimony that is brought forth here. Did he have trouble with what God did? Oh, absolutely he had trouble. He didn't understand. He questions God. He argues with God. And yet all along he trusts God and has become an eternal testimony to his God. Because of his faith in his God. We may not always realize what God is accomplishing in our lives. But he is doing his work. And he is faithful to do it. 
And the last thing I would say about spiritual warfare is God will sometimes use spiritual warfare and suffering as a means to reveal himself to us in a deeper way. And I already mentioned that. Job said to God, I heard reports about you. This is in Job 42.4. I heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen him. When you're experiencing difficulty, when you're experiencing spiritual warfare, look to Christ. Look to Christ and trust him because he is trustworthy. How much do you want to know God? Are you willing for him to do whatever it takes in your life so that you might know him? How much do you want to glorify God? Are you willing for him to do whatever he wills to do in your life so that you might bring glory to him? I can tell you in my own life, not just in Job's life, but my own personal life, some of the greatest testimonies in my life that I've seen of being people who glorify God have experienced horrendous things in their lives. And it is their faith in God and their devotion to God in the midst of that that helps remind me that God is worthy of our trust and faith and worship apart from the good things that he gives us. Because in truth, whether we understand it or not, he is always good. And whatever he gives to us is good. If good means being made more like Christ and glorifying him. Let's bow forward of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for Job. Thank you for the testimony of this godly man. Lord, I thank you that your word is true and that it's not fanciful, kind of pie-in-the-sky, sugary theory, but it meets us where we live in a broken, fallen world and shows us that you are faithful and true and that our only hope is in you. And Father, it is our desire to glorify you. It is our desire to know you. And I pray that you would give us the grace, that you would help us to be the faithful witnesses you've called us to be, regardless of how you decide to do that in our lives. And may we be like Job, who said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it is in our Lord's name we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.